It is good to be back with you, back amongst my family. Um, yeah, I've been traveling a bit. Even before I talked to you about that, I'll just say, kids, I'm thrilled that you're in here whenever you're in here. Um, I don't try to dumb down a message and make it, you know, Sunday school. I, I believe that you have the capacity at a young age to hear from God. Amen. The Holy Spirit can speak to you at a young age in depth, even ways that go beyond what your parents might hear. And so what I believe, kids, is that the Lord has a word for you in the midst of uh, being here. So you're not going to get a dumbed-down message. Not that we ever would do that, but, uh, and I'm not saying anybody else does. I'm just telling you, kids, ask the Lord to, to open your heart that you would receive what he wants to say to you. And I love when you bring me illustrations or pictures or words afterwards that, that tell me what the Lord's spoken to you. So bring it on, kids. So the last couple of weeks we've been busy. I've been all over the place and uh, uh, it, it's brought me a lot, of, uh, uh, a lot of desperation in a lot of ways. I was in um, Iraqi Kurdistan two Sundays ago and was there for about 10 days or so. Had the opportunity to be on the border of Iraq proper, you know, uh, Syria, Turkey, and Iran. And to meet with people from all walks of life, military leaders and government leaders and, you know, stay-at-home moms and kids and business people and farmers and Bedouins and you name it. And, uh, and I can tell you it's both beautiful and tragic what's going on in that part of the world right now. And I had uh, then the opportunity uh, to come back and uh, basically unpack my bag and do a little laundry and jump back on a plane and go to D.C. last Sunday along with Brian to represent both our congregation and, you know, the work I do with, with FAI at a night of prayer for the Kurdish people uh, in downtown D.C. And um, a number of people were there. I, I know that some folks from our church were there as well. Uh, we had, I think, six, 700 people. And it was, a, it was one of those nights, I believe, you know, you always want to be careful when you say things like this, but I believe it's one of those nights that I'll look back on when I'm old and I'll tell my grandkids, yeah, I was there. You know, on that night, I think that there was some history that was made in terms of declarations and, and, uh, and covenants uh, that were cut. And so, uh, as you, I, I'm saying all that to you to say, A, continue to pray. Please continue to pray. Uh, there are um, uh, tragic things that are happening. It, just before I came in, there was a message that some guys that work alongside of FAI um, that are right there in the front lines, a couple of, uh, one guy was killed uh, today this morning, and, and several injured with a group called the Free Burma Rangers. And, uh, and so it is, it's, it's, there's a, a serious sense of uh, giving yourself over to the Lord to, to be doing this work, but there's also an amazing sense of the, of the power of God being released and seeing it uh, tangibly. And so, um, but I'll tell you, also while I was gone, I, uh, you know, my back kind of went kaput. Uh, Really, nothing that I know happened. Just woke up one morning after getting into a place called the Hook and sleeping in a not very comfortable bed, maybe in a not very comfortable position, waking up. And I, and I would attribute my back being sore to partly being older and not in great shape. Um, uh, I would associate it partly with stress, and I would associate it, a lot of it, to the demonic. You know, really just a profound sense of attack. And, you know, ask people to pray, and it's, it's ebbed and flowed. And, and um, I say all that to say that that very much is I've been struggling with. And, and what I mean by struggling is it's a kind of sort of thing when it goes into your back 
into a sciatic situation. You can't really sleep, and you wake up at night, and you're, you're kind of just groping and grasping for, for some position where you can have relief. And when you're in that place, you, 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 you kind of lose all pretext in prayer. You're not trying to recite you know, pertinent scriptures or what's a good place to go when you're feeling a little pain. And, and you just basically cry out to God, right? You're saying, Jesus, help, you know? And it very much was resonating with me as I was crying out, you know, a dark night or several dark nights lately um, with Rich's message from last week where he's talking about the proper response. And if you did not hear that message, I would encourage you I would exhort you to go and listen to that message. It was a, a, a powerful message based in Acts 3 and the man at the beautiful gate who was received healing and was worship and, and worshiping and, and praising, thanking God for his healing, but also the right response of opening yourself up to repentance that the full streams of you know, healing would come into your life, all that God wants to do, the fullness of the Spirit. Uh, and he closed that message with a spoken word from Francis Chan called Lukewarm and Loving It. And if you didn't hear it, you should go, you should go listen to it. it, is, it it's deeply convicting and challenging. And uh, the bottom line of that message is, is that my, many of it's kind of what Brian was, was getting at earlier, that many of us in the church, we aren't just lukewarm. We're aware we're lukewarm, and we're actually okay with it. And he's saying, if that's the position you're in, don't even go have lunch. Don't go to work. Go sell everything you have and, and, and get right with the, you know, with the Lord. Because to be lukewarm... To be in that position is to be in a position of being an unbeliever. And so, um, really, that kind of brought me to a place of, in my crying out, I'm, I've been thinking a lot about the relationship between our knowledge of God and our experience of God. And, and actually, as much as I've been disturbed over the course of the last year with uh, what, you, what we call the deconstructionist movement, people who are significant leaders in the faith, worship leaders, pastors, writer saying, you know, I'm renouncing my faith. I can no longer claim to, to, to walk with the Lord. And it's been, you know, it's influencing people. It's influenced people in our own church. I've talked with and read things that people have written who said, you know, I think I'm kind of deconstructing my faith as well. And you feel this kind of like, oh, Lord, what are you going to do about it? And I feel like part of what he's going to do about it is like Kanye West, Justin Bieber, <laughs> I mean, the Lord just says, you know, I, I can raise up somebody who's, whose life has been profane, who will call me king and bring more people back in than anybody will ever deconstruct. And so personally, I've been praying quite a bit for uh, Mr. West. And I would say that uh, a lot of criticism that's come his way from people like me is that a guy like that who's, you know, maybe young in the faith and it's real needs to shut his mouth and go and learn for years before he comes out and shares. He need, the knowledge needs to go first before the experience. And it's, it's, a tricky, it's a tricky equation. If I were to say to you, if, if someone were in this room, is there anybody in this room that's never seen the Atlantic Ocean? That would be really bizarre in this. Really? You guys. Okay. Well, okay. So imagine, you know, you've never seen the Atlantic Ocean, and I, and I said to you, hey, I want to take you out to the ocean, and I take you to the ocean. You've never been to an ocean before, and you stand on the, on the sea, you stand on the shore, and you have all the sand, you have all the water, you have all the sights and all the sounds. It's amazing. You can taste the water, the salt. I mean, the experience of that would be overwhelming and unforgettable. Agreed? Amen? Right? And so imagine you come back from the ocean, and you say to me, hey, I just experienced the ocean, and now I know the ocean. 
And I say to you, actually, this is the ocean, and I show you a map of the entire ocean. And I say, now, this is the ocean. You'd say, you're nuts. That's a piece of paper or, or a picture on a screen. That's not the ocean. I, could, I can't touch that, taste that, feel that, sense that. That's not the ocean. The question is, who's right? Yes, is exactly right. It, it's, it's that you actually need both, that you need both of these things, and the, 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 the ocean is much bigger than your, your experience of it at Jacksonville Beach, but it's also much more real than just looking at a map of it. You need both, and I think with regards to this idea of what comes first or how do I deal with the, you know, uh, th- this relationship between knowledge of God and the power and experience of God, how do we get it right? I mean, I don't know enough or I haven't you know, experienced enough. How do we do it? I I would say this, that our knowledge is supposed to be a building block and never a stumbling block. And I want to kind of go through a story in Scripture that I think will help us get to a place of maybe opening ourselves up and to getting the order right. To me, it's all about the order. And so if you have your Bibles with you, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. I'm just going to read the first five verses, and then we're going to talk it through. It's a beautiful story. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament in Paul's writings because of just the significance of what's going on here. And so if you have it with you, if not, it's, it's on the screens. Actually, that's a different... I'll read it from there, since it's different than what I have in my Bible. Paul says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you, this is verse 3, I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And so, Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would help us to, to grasp Uh, Not just the height and the depth and the width of your love, but the significance of your power and the significance of this message that uh, this hero of the faith for us, Paul, has to unpack for the Corinthians. Lord, it wasn't just for them there and then. It's for us here and now. And so we ask, Lord, that you would would give us uh, both context and, and deep truth in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, I've preached, because this is a favorite passage, I've touched on it many times, but I haven't been here in a while, and I wanted to kind of hit this in a way that's somewhat autobiographical, but also, I think, pertinent for for us now. And, you know, you've heard me say before that that Corinthians, um, you know, the the, the Corinth is, it's kind of like a combination of New York, L.A., New Orleans, Las Vegas, wrapped up into one. It's Jacksonville in many ways. It's America uh, in a lot of ways in terms of being, you know, cultural uh, uh, more than spiritual, and uh, even our spirituality is embedded in and deeply influenced by the things of the culture. And Corinth was a was a, a peninsula, like an isthmus. Ith, how do you say that word? Isthmus, like Christmas without the isthmus. Yeah. About, and it was about 60 miles or so from Athens, and so it was, you know, I don't know how long that'd be, maybe a couple days' walk uh, from Athens, and that's important because Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and when he, when he got there, I mean, this is how this passage starts. It says, he's basically in chapter 2 saying, when I came to you, 
Like when I arrived, this is how I arrived. And it's a pretty amazing story uh, if you piece it together, not just by the words that he's saying in this verse, but by kind of playing with the book of Acts and trying to put the pieces together to see what he's talking about. And so what, one of the things that you have to pick up on this, he says in verse, <clears throat> verse 3, he describes his condition when he arrives. It says, I mean, which to me is a very powerful statement um, if, if you're not necessarily brimming with confidence. I mean, don't, don't we have this perception of Paul as, uh, you know, when you study the personalities of the Bible, Paul almost always as, a, as this, is this powerful father and apostle has, has, you know, this description of being one who is, who, is, who is confident. Much of his writing, he expresses this confidence. But you can see in this passage, that's not always at the root of who he is. And there's good reason why in this passage he's not. But you see what he says about himself. He says, I came to you in weakness, in great fear, and trembling. <laughs> it ought to give us hope if you feel like, hey, I'm not really in a position that uh, the Lord could use me because I'm not brimming with confidence and overflowing with uh, depth of knowledge and this and that. Paul is, is opening up a door for us, for all of us, to be, to be carriers of this message. And so my question is, why? What happened to Paul? Paul was, uh, it, it says in the, in, in, if you, if you go back and look at the story, Paul in Acts chapter 17 is, is in Athens, like I said, about 60 miles away, and he is coordinating a, 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 a series of messages with the philosophers and the Stoics and the, 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 the intelligentsia of the day. So he's really, in, in Athens, he's really focused on, the, on the, the knowledge-based community. He's going to the university, basically, and getting, gathering the professors and the brightest and the best, and he's saying, look, I want to talk to you about Jesus. Now, he doesn't say it that straightforwardly. He enters into dialogue with them, the, the Jewish elite and then the Greek elite, and, he's, and he then he, he brings it all to a point on this hill. You know what it's called? Mars, yeah, it's a hill called Mars. And in the, up there with this group, the Areopagus, he, he surrounds, uh, he, he's surrounded by statues to gods. And he notices there's one statue that's, that, you know, they were, they were smart enough to leave some wiggle room, and there's one statue that just says a statue to the unknown God. And so what Paul does is he says, and this, I think this is one of the most brilliant, maybe the most brilliant message preached in the Bible. He says, oh, you have a statue here to this unknown God. Let me tell you who this unknown God is. And he starts with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, tells them about Israel, the God of Israel, and he tells them about the, the Jewish Messiah who comes in time, named Jesus, and, 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 and is crucified and, and is raised from the dead. And if you put your faith in him, that you can have eternal life. It's a powerful message. It's a powerful message. So powerful that like a person or two gets saved. Not much happens. This is maybe the, the most brilliant rhetorical message using the context and all that's around him to, to preach a message that I can tell you every once in a while when you're preaching, you're, you know, particularly if you have to preach every week, you have to, for, you know, Sunday night somebody says, you know what you were saying earlier today? And you're, you're like, no, you've already uploaded or you've already, that's, you've already downloaded that and your, your, your heart begins to point towards the next week. 
And so every once in a while, you're on Monday or Tuesday, and you're like, man, this is going to be good. Like, I feel the fire, and, the, and just the way my outline, this is, this is going to work so well. And I think Paul knew. He's like, man, this is perfect. I've got them right where I want them. And then it, it just didn't fall into place, I think. I, I mean, you can almost feel, I think, particularly this is the book of Acts where Peter preaches his first sermon and doesn't really have anything to go on other than his, fail, his history of failure, and then Jesus restores him on the beach. He waits for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes, pow, and he opens his mouth, and 3,000 get saved. And Paul, who's the, 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 the he's, he's a Pharisee, he's, he's, the, he's elite, he's the, he's, he knows more than any of these fishermen and these regular guys, and he gets up and gives this powerful message, and a couple people get saved. And it says, at the end, it says the very first verse of Acts 18 and Paul left and immediately went to Corinth. And so I wonder to myself, self, what happened on the way to Corinth? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's impossible to know. But I, but I wonder if maybe on the road to Corinth, Paul met Jesus, kind of like he met him on the road to Damascus. Where, where, where Jesus comes to Paul and says, you know, i got to tell you, that was a brilliant message. One of the best I've heard, and I've heard a lot. But there's another way. And if you're open to this other way, where maybe we can deal with the order a little bit, then we can see something happen that could change even Corinth. There's a word that was called something like, Corinthensio, which basically meant if you were to li- if you live a life so loosely and so out there and you're wild and you're crazy, it means you're living like a Corinthian. This was a wild place. And I think Paul is coming into some pla- a place that obviously is going to be less receptive and more worldly, and, and, and they love philosophy here. And Paul's like, how am I going to be able to do ministry here? And Jesus says, well, I can show you a way that's different. One of my favorite... Uh, Heroes of the Faith is a guy named E. Stanley Jones, and E. Stanley Jones talks about the time where he got saved, and uh, he got his call to ministry, and he, he expresses to a pastor that he's under that he feels called to ministry, and the pastor says, fantastic, let's put it to practice, you're preaching Sunday night. And so they had, ba- back in those days, there used to be Sunday night services, and people would come as faithfully on Sunday night as they did on Sunday morning. True. And Wednesdays. Now, if people show up on Sundays 1.9 times a month, they're considered committed or lukewarm. Uh, and so on a Sunday night with a packed house, Stanley Jones gets up with his, with his he, he, he wrote, prepared, wrote, memorized a message, and he gets up and he's going really well until he gets about three minutes into it, and he uses the word indifferentism, indifferentism. And he says when he uses the word, one of his college classmates, a young girl, lowers her head and laughs. She laughs because this is clearly not the Stanley she knows. This is Stanley trying to show he's puffed up and knowledgeable. And so she laughs. And when she laughs, he becomes so unsettled that he loses the rest of the message that he memorized. Loses it completely, has nothing left. And he realizes right then and there, he says, I might be called to a lot of things, but I'm no preacher. I'm a failure. And he walks off the stage. And as he's walking off the stage, he hears the Lord say to him, Stanley... Have I not done anything for you? And he says, Lord, you've done everything for me. 
And, and, he, and the Lord says, well, can't you just tell them that? So Stanley walks down to the front of the stage and over the course of the next 30 minutes begins to share this testimony of his experience of the Lord and what God's done in his life. And a flood of people come forward. One guy in particular to say to him, my life is so far from God, Stanley, and when you got down and spoke on the ground, the, the fire of God fell on my heart and I need to give my life to Jesus. Hallelujah. And Jones says that night when he goes back to his bed and he reflects on it, he hears God say to him these words, Stanley Jones, I didn't call you to be my lawyer, but to be my witness. God doesn't need us to be his lawyers. Nothing wrong with knowledge. There's nothing wrong with knowing it. But he's called us in this great commission to be his witnesses. Really the word that he uses, um, I hate to tell you this, but it's a word that we can translate advocate, which doesn't, well, you think witness and you think like somebody who comes into a court case and says, well, I saw this car hit that car, this, like objective. It's not objective. It means to advocate. It means to take the side of, and it literally means, the witness word means to to lay your life down. It's, It's the same word as martyr. And this is what, um, that, what, what Jones is called to. I had a dream uh, earlier this year that in this dream, uh, well, I, I, I'll, I'll shortchange it. I ha- you can, you can, we can talk later if you want the whole dream, but I'll just give you the bottom line of the dream. The bottom line of the dream is I was being required to, to speak in front of a group of young people. I don't know whether they were chronologically young or young in the spirit. And in my dream, I was having to teach or preach to them out of my authority. In other words, I, was, I, I had a lane, a spiritual lane, and I could not go to the left or the right. You know, like if I, even if I wanted to, I couldn't teach over here. I could only teach on this one thing, very narrow topic. And my topic was this, how to live a life before the Lord that is almost but not quite great. Ah. And... And greatness was defined on this board behind me as this. Run the race marked out for you with perseverance, avoiding these distractions and the sin that so easily entangles you, and fix your eyes on Jesus. That was it. That was it. That was all that it was defined as. And my topic was, that's greatness. If you just do that, you're great. And my topic was how to live a life that's almost that. That was my authority. I didn't, it wasn't a nightmare. I didn't wake up, you know, under condemnation, but I did wake up under a certain amount of conviction that I didn't want my life to be marked this way. God's called us to keep our eyes fixed on him, on Jesus, and to, and to be more witnesses. Those who are fixated on his beauty and his power than lawyers. So if you, if you take a look at what, what Paul does, it says that, uh, you know, when he, when, he, when he was in Athens, um, he, 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 he debates and he reasons and he's brilliant. And he says to the Corinthians, when I, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or wisdom, superior wisdom. I just did one thing. I just brought to you the story, the story about God and who he is. And he says essentially this. He said, I, this is one of my favorite phrases in scripture. He says, I was, I was resolved when I was with you to know nothing. It, so so if, you, if, you, if you begin to look at knowledge or the lawyer side of it and, and, the, and the idea of being able to recall anything you need to recall at any point to prove your point, Paul says, I was resolved when I was with you guys to know nothing, to put all that aside. Do, do you see that? I'm, oh, it's not up there. Do you see that on your, in your Bible, on your phones? Do you, do you see it? you see where Paul says that? I mean, I'm making this up. It's clear. Paul says, I resolved to know nothing 
while I was with you, except Jesus and him crucified. In other words, I resolved to fix my eyes on Jesus and just be one, a one-message guy, a one-trick pony. All I'm going to preach to you week after week after week, all I'm going to teach you on is getting at the foot of the cross and seeing him high and lifted up and seeing his power released. Because there's power released on the cross that goes so far beyond the world, right? Amen. I mean, it's this power that's released because it's like the power that's released in fasting. When you, when it's, it's this meekness, this strength under control. And he's saying, if you can lock in to the power of the cross, you can, you can do anything you know, in this world. And so he has one message. He says, I, didn't, I resolved to know nothing with you except everything. And his everything is this, this message of the cross. I always love this story. I've told it many, many times, but it's such a fitting illustration of it. When, when that great German theologian, Karl Barth, was interviewed by a couple of young seminary students, and, and they asked him ridiculously if he could sum up his life's work, which is like 10,000 pages of systematic theology. I mean, just how do you sum that up? He said, can you sum it up in a sentence? His response was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's all about him, isn't it? And if we are just able to get our eyes fixed on this God-man, to see his beauty and to, and to see his power. And as Brian was talking about earlier, to, to, to truly kind of to resonate with what he's done for us, whether you're in the midst of a dark night and your back is aching and you can't get comfortable and you're, you're, you know, you're, 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 you're crying out to God and, you know, you're, you're doing it with, with, with the simplest words you can have. You're doing it in words, you know, um, that can't be understood. You're, you're crying out every way you can cry out to God. And, and there's, there's no treatise there's no outline to your prayer whether you're there or whether you are living in the beauty of of hindsight discernment this is the reason the bible says over and over again to remember right it's a, the, the the jews are reminded to remember what god's done for them to, to, to place this everywhere to place this on their forehead their doorposts why so you won't forget you won't you won't forget to be grateful for what he's done because he's proven himself to be faithful. And so whether you're in the dark night or you're beyond the dark night, the answer is the same. It's just keeping our eyes fixed on this guy, on Jesus and what he desires to do for us. Now, look at verse 4. It says um, my message it's literally the, a, a Greek word that's the same as with, uh, well, he says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. The, the, the message and the words are the same exact word. He says, basically, my word from God. He had a word. He, he said, this is the word of the Lord, his prophetic word. So he's saying, when I stood before you with a prophetic word and my preaching, my kerygma, my pronouncement, which is my prophetic declaration of all that God wants to do for you, wasn't with wise and persuasive words from the Lord. Oh, I didn't come to you with something that was going to convince you because of the way I said it that you should follow God or you should follow me. I didn't, there was nothing within my words that was going to be significant in and of themselves. But what I brought you was a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith wouldn't rest on human wisdom but on, on God's power. I think this is a startling passage for, for a variety of reasons. What does he mean? Well, uh, well, I, I can tell you that, that we don't know. We don't know exactly what he means. I can, I, sometimes I read this passage, and I think, you know, like Paul was like a, a worker at Sam's Club, 
and he set up a table with, like like a cooking demonstration. Like, let me, you know, I'm going to preach to you, but then give you a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Like, and then the Spirit, you know. But the Spirit is not recipe prone. The Spirit of God is radically free and cannot be caught up in one single experience so that you can turn that experience into a principle and say, if you just do this over and over, then you'll have everything God wants for you. God is radically free. The Spirit of God, the Spirit that of Jesus, that, that, that Jesus has ascended into heaven and he's, and he's sent the Holy Spirit as the chief executor of the Godhead. He's radically free to do whatever he wants. And so when Paul's saying demonstration of the Spirit's power, let me be clear to you. Paul's job is to declare the Word of God. It's the Spirit's job to do the demonstrating. Amen. It's not Paul's job to do the demonstrating. Amen. It's not the preacher's job to do the demonstrating. It's not the it's, it's not the leader's job to do the demonstrating. And let me just warn you, when the leader begins doing the demonstrating, walk away. Amen. Walk out. Amen. Jesus said that there'd be things like this. And I think that when you start to unpack what it must have meant, it must have meant a few things. It must have meant signs and wonders and healing. Miracles. The lame. Bring me the lame, the blind, the sick. There's a friend of... An old friend of mine, I, I haven't seen him in years. Brian and I were with him, you know, 13 years ago or something in, in uh, Thailand. And he was a church planter in India. And the way he would plant churches, he would go into the center of town and he would kick over the altar with all the gods on it. He'd kick it over. And he would say to the town, where are your gods to come and defend themselves? And he'd say, the reason your gods don't come and defend themselves is because they're false gods, but my God's real. Bring me the lame, the sick, the blind. And you'd pray over them for healing. And whoever got healed, became the, 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 they became the first converts in the church. And so I believe that part of what Paul is saying to the Corinthians is signs and wonders. Things were happening that can't be explained. I don't like the word supernatural because God exists within the natural, but I say miraculous. Things that can't be explained with our... And, and we should be jealous. We should be content. We contend for signs and wonders. We contend for this to happen in our midst, don't we? Don't we want this? Don't we believe the fact that if God were... Well, I, I'll tell you what I believe and don't believe. I believe that if, 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 people, if a guy were to come in here with no leg because he lost it in war, we prayed and his leg was regenerated, I believe it would make a difference to that guy. And I believe the word would get out in our community. I also believe that a lot of people would say it's baloney. Because that's the world. Right? So does that mean we're not going to contend for it because, because it, you know, that somebody's not going to believe it? Does it also mean we're not going to contend for it because people fake this stuff all the time? You can't judge what's real in the spirit of God by the counterfeit. Just because you've experienced the counterfeit doesn't mean the real isn't real. And so let me, uh, sorry, lost my. So I believe it included signs and wonders. In fact, if you look at uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, I'll, you don't have to flip there. I'll just flip there and read it to you. Here's, what he, here's, what, here's the context of Hebrews 2. It's talking about the message of salvation going out to all mankind. And it says that uh, this salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, by Jesus, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. And God testified to this message of salvation by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And so I believe when Paul is talking about a demonstration of the Spirit's power, he's talking about that very thing, that God's message of salvation is to be accompanied by signs and wonders and miracles and the gifts of the Spirit, all according to God's will. Jesus said this. Jesus said that miraculous signs would follow those who believe. 
And if, if there is no element, if there is never an element of the miraculous embedded within the ministry, you maybe should question whether there is true belief in Jesus or the word of God is really being preached. The preacher has to give something for God to confirm, right? Paul's, mess, Paul's job is to, to declare the message. It's the Spirit's job to demonstrate. The preacher has to preach so the Spirit can confirm. On the other hand, the Spirit of God brings these signs and wonders and gifts according to his will. And genuine miracles, as I just mentioned, you can't work them up. You can't just, it's not a recipe. It's not Sam's Club where you can go, if you add a little of this, little of this, little of this, guarantee miracles coming your way. You can't bring it by human effort. You can't bring it by emotion alone. We can, I mean, our real emotion, our raw emotion before the Lord is good. It's right. It's real. But just because we're emotional, God isn't obligated in his freedom to respond. And a lot of damage, if we're going to be honest about it, a lot of damage is done by those who don't think enough miracles are happening and want to prime the pump with the enthusiasm of the flesh. And it's hard to say, isn't it? If we're going to be honest about it, isn't it hard to say which is worse? The denial of miracles and the gifts of the Spirit or the fleshly counterfeit of them? Which is worse? Either error is dangerous, right? If we deny that they're real, that's dangerous. It's, it, it should call into question whether the testimony of Jesus is, is real there. But if we manufacture and make it up, it's just as damaging to the body of Christ. I have a good friend. Well, he's not a good friend anymore. He was a good friend who walked away from the church because he sat at, a, he sat at an altar one day in, a, in a, a Pentecostal setting. They believe very much so that the, the gift of tongues is the primary and initial evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit. I believe very much so that, that, that the gift of tongues is an, an evidence. I just don't think it's the primary and initial evidence. It could be. But, it, but in this case, you couldn't be filled with the Spirit until this happened. So he was at the altar praying desperately that God would fill him in this way. He would prayed over and over and over again. And finally, one of his dad's friends who was an elder said to him, man, just make something up. We're all getting hungry. And he got up and he walked away and he never went back to the church. And he completely denied the gifts of the Spirit. And, I, and, and we as a church have to do better than that, don't we? It includes signs and wonders, the lame, the blind, the sick. It includes spiritual gifts, you know, the, 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 both the gifts, the, the administrative gifts of the Spirit that everybody believes the administrative gifts of the Spirit are still around today, but it also includes the supernatural or miraculous gifts of the Spirit that many people believe died with the apostles. I do not believe, our church does not believe that. I'm actually, I have to tell you, I'm, 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 I'm walking through this a little bit systematically at Brian's urging, uh, because I kind of said, I roll my eyes as the guy who primarily gives the message, and, he, and I said, Brian, there are some who think we're not charismatic enough, and there's some who think we're too charismatic, which may, I think means we're in the right place. But he would say, he said to me, you know, well, we have to teach more on it. And I'll tell you, I think he's right. We have to teach more on it. But let me give you some context. I don't think, I think God is radically free to move however he wants to move in this service. Don't you? But I think that the primary context in which God wants to move in a deep place is probably in some smaller group. That's the primary. I don't think, because if we're going to pour everything into Sunday morning, then we're just falling into the error of the Western church. Where everything we believe God wants to do, he does on Sunday morning. Could you imagine if Paul's ministry in Corinth if he said, we'll see you next Sabbath, and that's it. It's happening day after day. The Spirit of God is, he doesn't sleep or slumber. He's available in your home. He's available. The, the primary objective and the primary necessity to receive the fullness of God, signs, wonders, gifts, all of this, is not 
that you would come to a service on Sunday morning. It's that you would posture yourself in a place of hunger before the Lord and say, you know, cry out to him. But the Spirit is willing and ready and able to move in the context of our worship as well. I, I, if you ever want to come up and pray in the Spirit, come up to the front row with me. And I sing in the Spirit throughout most of our worship because I close my eyes and I don't remember the words. So I just sing in the Spirit. Right? There's freedom. There's freedom for that. One of the other things that it means when Paul says a demonstration of the Spirit's power is he's talking about the testimony of God that a release of, the, a release of the, the power of the Spirit is for this message, the most significant, let me just say it this way, stumbling over my words, the most significant demonstration of the Spirit's power, as much as signs and wonders are, are powerful and great demonstrations, as much as gifts are great demonstrations, the greatest demonstration of the Spirit's power is a life that's going to hell being transformed to a life that's going to heaven. And the testimony about God, which falls on, on somebody about a, a, a man who came from heaven to earth, who, didn't, who, who left behind all of, his, all of his equality with God, he, he left all that, emptied himself, and came to heaven and made himself nothing, and took on the form of a man, not just a man, but a servant, and died a death on the cross. And as a result, God has raised him up. When you get that testimony and it hits you, like Francis Chan was talking about that message, you can't be lukewarm. That is a demonstration of the Spirit's power that is, there's nothing like that. To see a single person have that happen, all of heaven lets loose, you know, for that. And we need to be just as jealous for that as any other part of it. Well, if you look at the last verse of this this little passage, Paul says the reason, you know, if you want to get the why behind the what, you know, why did I, why is it so different than Athens? When Athens, I preached this brilliant message. It was knowledge-based. You know, it was, it was so powerful in the, in, this, in, the, in, the, in the rhetorical sense, but it wasn't as powerful in terms of the fruit. Why, why am I doing it differently? Well, the why behind the what is here in verse 5. He says to the Corinthians, he says, look, if you're going to come to know Jesus, you've got to know him in a way where your faith doesn't rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. And I will tell you that any preacher in the anywhere in the world, but particularly in the West, who doesn't read that verse and feel some conviction. Something's wrong. That we cannot build up congregations around personalities. The personality cult is dead. God is, I think God is eradicating it under the end of the age. I think that the age of the superstar ministry is over. And I think he's going to be distributing out responsibility and power and authority to everyone within the church. Anyone who will take it, he'll give it to them. I think he's done with platform uh, ministries that are pre- predominated by somebody who has a, a, some sort of gift or wisdom that's beyond somebody else's. I don't think he's done using preachers. But, but I think that this is exactly the reason why, is if you are talked into something, you can be talked out of it. Amen. But when you fall under the power of God, it changes you. This is what I'm praying for guys like Kanye, that he's come under the power of God and there's no turning back, no turning back. I've decided to follow Jesus. If you want the definition of what Paul says is the power of God, he says the power of God is the message of the cross. He says it's foolishness to those who are, who are perishing, but to those who believe, the message of the cross is the power of God. You know, Paul didn't stay in Athens very long. I don't, I don't remember somebody, I, I always wish, Kevin, are you in here? 
How long did Paul stay in Athens? <laughs> well, if we, if we were sitting there in the back room talking, you know, he didn't stay there years. He stayed there for a very little bit of time. But on Paul's first trip to Corinth, he stayed a year and a half. And I think there's something embedded within that where Paul began to see the fruit of a message that wasn't based on, 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 on just his knowledge, but based upon a demonstration of, of this experience. of. I think Paul just said, look, guys, this is who I am. I was killing y'all. I was killing Christians. I was the chief amongst uh, the enemies of God, and, and, and Jesus himself got hold of me and changed my life. And I'm willing to go wherever and do whatever he wants, wherever it may be. I'm dead to myself. My body's been bought. I don't care anymore what anybody's going to do to me. They can put me in jail. They can beat me. And you look at the center of God's will for Paul. People always tell me, I just want to be the center of God's will. I say, like, Paul? You know, shipwrecked, beaten, stoned, left for dead, in prison, over and over again. His body's broken. I think my back's hurting. I think Paul is a broken man by my age. And, 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 but he's the center of God's will, and I don't think he'd have it any other way. And he stays there with these people because I believe he saw what it looks like when the power of God falls. Our preaching has to be centered on this. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Is it the ocean or is it the map? (laughs) Well, as you guys rightly answered before, it's both. But I think there is something about the order. If you want this knowledge of God, and we need to go deep in the Lord, if we want that to be a building block and not a stumbling block, then I believe it is all about the order. I think you have to experience the power of God, really experience the power of God in order to be motivated or fueled to go deep into the knowledge of God. There's a guy that uh, he's in ministry. He's a, really, he's a really fantastic pastor, and he's a good preacher. And uh, for a long time, he struggled in his walk with God, and, and it, it, he knew he had a certain call to ministry, but he didn't even really walk with the Lord. Well, I, I could almost say his name's Jeff uh, Henderson because it's a lot like my story. I knew, I knew when I was a kid, I sat in a, um, in a frozen chosen church, and I was an acolyte. And I would walk up with a little flag, and I would sit down and put the flag in the thingy-majig, and then I'd have to sit up on the platform the whole time. I, you know, I guarantee you, if I was a kid today, I'd, I'd be on, my mom probably would have me on all the drugs, you know. Um, I, for me to sit up on a stage for an hour still was, was impossible. And I was just a wiggly worm the whole time, and I couldn't stand being up there, except when the preacher would get up to preach. Something in me just, I just locked into that. And I felt the fire of God on me as a kid. And I remember writing about this as I got to be older and I was reflecting back on my life because I'd never connected the dots, but I began to realize that at that early age, God was speaking to me about my life, but I I didn't know that's what it was. I just thought, what is it about this message that so captures my heart? Well, this friend of mine was was a bit like this, that he was he knew there was a call in his life, but he was running from God, and he was really living a pretty horrible life in a lot of ways. And every time he'd get close to God, he would, he would drift, not drift, he'd run away. And he said the problem was is that he kept recognizing the fact that he was called by God, and he did have a responsibility to do something about that. But his life was so messed up, he said, I've got to go and get right before I give my life to God. I gotta. So he would go read the scriptures, and he would study, and he'd read it, and he'd go, I just don't get this. 
This is so confusing. This is so difficult. He would read books on theology, and he'd say, this is, I can't get it. And he'd go out, and he would get high, or he'd get drunk, or he would do bad things, and he'd go, you know, he, he was Romans 7. He's literally stuck between his flesh and the spirit, and God's calling him, but he can't go. And he says that he's struggling, and finally one day a friend says to him, this is the voice of God speaking. You know, God speaks through many ways, including through other people. And this friend of his says to him, Rick, it seems to me like what you're doing is that you're trying to get dressed up before you take a shower. You're trying to get all your your best clothes on before you take a shower. And he says, I think you have the order wrong. He says, why don't you just fall on your face before God and allow him to do whatever he wants to do to you and then he'll dress you. And he said that one tiny little word, which sounds so ridiculously oversimplistic, doesn't it? It sounds a lot like Paul saying, I knew nothing while I was amongst you except Jesus. (laughs) I knew nothing but everything. This is what Rick did. Rick said he fell on his face before God. He said, Lord, I am so sorry for the mess I've made of it. Would you take me right now just as I am? And the Lord said, yeah, I'll take you. And began to undress him from all the sin in his life, to wash him clean, and then to dress him up as a godly man. Or he continues, there's no deconstructionism in Rick's life. Because God made him in the right order. Brian, come on up, or Kayla, whoever's coming. Because the reason I think that that's such an important consideration is this. I think two things. I think, number one, if we have failed you because we've not encouraged or spurred you to be hungry for more of the Holy Spirit, then, we're, then, then, then we apologize. Let me just tell you, the Holy Spirit isn't different than Jesus. So when we say hunger for the Godhead, it's all, he's one guy. God the Father, Jesus the Son, this, the Holy Spirit. We, 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 if we've not spurred you to a, to a deeper desire, if you watched that lukewarm and loving it message and you said, why didn't anybody ever tell me? I, we repent. We want you to know that, there, that you should not rest if you're not on fire. There's no resting. You know, and this isn't guilt. I'm not heaping guilt on you. I'm just saying... I'm convinced there's more. The number one, the simple rule in prayer is don't lie to God. If you just say more, he's faithful to answer that prayer. He'll give it to you. And the second thing is, if we have ever in any way, shape, or form taught in any way that, that, that my experience of God is a principle that you have to follow. In other words, you know, I always kind of half-jokingly say there's the Holy Spirit Club where you had your right foot forward and your left hand up when you received the Holy Spirit. And so what you say now is if you want to receive the Holy Spirit, then put your right foot forward and your left hand up and then you'll get it all. And then people who join you become part of your your club and then there becomes a spiritual exclusivity in that. Let me tell you, God is radically free to move in your life. And all you have to do is ask. You don't even have to beg him. You can there's nothing wrong with going before him and saying, I'm not moving until you give me everything you've got. But he doesn't usually need that kind of prodding to give you what he wants to give you. If you just say, Lord, I hunger for more, that I have it, he'll come. But don't get dressed before you take the shower. Just come and receive. And they're going to play a song, and I'm going to pray real quick, and then I'm going to be up here and if you want me to pray for you, I'll pray for you. If you want to get alone with God, you can get alone with God. I can promise you if I pray for you, it's not going to be complicated. 
I'm going to pray that the Lord would pour himself out on, on you and that the Spirit of God be poured out on you in a radical way. I'll probably talk about this more in the weeks to come, what it means to be filled with the Spirit. It's spatial, right? If there is a vessel and it gets filled with something to the point of overflow, that's, that's fullness. If it's half full, that's not full. You can't be just an optimist in the, in the spiritual realm. You have to be full to the point of overflowing. And so my prayer is going to just be that, that God would fill you to the point of overflowing. It might look weird. It might feel weird. You might manifest. See, the word, the word demonstration of the Spirit's power doesn't mean demonstration like you think of it. It means manifest. It means that God's power was made real. This is the way that we knew that it was Jesus. When Jesus came onto a scene and somebody was crippled, what did he do? He healed them. So when he ascended into heaven, how did you actually prove you had the testimony of God? You did the things Jesus did. He said, greater, you'll do greater things. And so that's what we contend for, is that he would do greater things in our lives. So would you stand with me if you're able? You can come down now if you want to come. I'll be just a minute to join you. And, and let me be clear what I'm, what I'm saying in terms of come. What I'm saying is, don't come forward if you've got all you need from the Lord. If, you're, if you got it all, if you're on fire and you got all you need, and he's poured out everything and you're, and you're operating in that, then you by no means, just stay where you are and pray for the rest of us. But those of you who say, Lord, if there's more, I want it. If there's more, I need it. Come fill me to the point of overflowing. Be radically free in my life. And that's, I want you to join me. And so, Father, we ask in Jesus' name.